All right, well, good morning, good morning, good morning. If you'd have a seat. <laughs> um, my name is Sam, and I get to preach a lot here. We are um, going through Matthew. We are in what is called Book 4. We divided Matthew into five books, and we're in the fourth. So there's three others in the back. If you didn't get one of these, uh, this is basically a study guide for um, the sections we're going over, which is basically chapters 21 through 25. And this is, I think it's like 15, 16 weeks. It provides intro questions. has some appendixes in there about end times. Uh, the picture for the background is a, a painting, old painting, about the destruction of Jerusalem. It happened in 70 AD and the war in Jerusalem. And so... Um, a lot of the stuff we'll go through in book four is a, a lot of end times parables that Jesus teaches and stuff. So this is basically designed for you to take notes in and to use in your road groups if you're a part of one, which we hope that you are, so that you can dive in deeper together in community and learn and grow and ask questions and, and just spend more time in God's Word together. So uh, that's for you. Please grab one at some point. And it's even an easy study to go through. Um, at home with your family, uh, or if you need to catch up, sermons are online and they uh, are there for personal studies where well. So we're in Matthew 21 today, and we're going to read the first 11 verses and then see what God has to say. So if you'd follow along with me, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, not the first written, but the first one uh, organized as such. So chapter 21, verse 1, is where we will... Begin. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent, to two, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's Word. And I will pray so I don't screw it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is a gift. It is a grace. You have come down to us and You have left us a revelation of who You are. So, that much of who you are is a mystery, but much of who you are and what you have for our lives has been revealed. So we thank you for that. We also thank you, Lord, that it has the power to change us from the inside out. So I pray that today you'll move me out of the way, that Holy Spirit, you'll speak the words you need to speak, whether they be words of comfort or words of conviction, that you will lift a veil from our hearts and from our minds so that we can understand and believe and lead us to the cross where we find true hope and true joy and true victory in Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. So I know it might seem unusual to be preaching this passage the week after Easter, but I'll explain why we do that. Uh, it's where God has us, and we just kind of go straight through. But 
In many ways, uh, chapter 21 signals the beginning of the end of the beginning uh, of the story of Jesus told by Matthew. The last quarter of this book is really the record of the last eight days of Jesus' life. And so for 20 chapters uh, in Matthew, Jesus has journeyed in and around northern Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, in kind of wildernessy areas, rural areas, what we might call suburban areas, but away from large cities. And now, all the action kind of changes. Um, the teachings in chapters 21 to 23, to kind of give you an overview, and this might sermon might sound a little bit like an intro, but it's to prepare you for kind of the next 15 weeks. But... All the action and teaching in chapters 21 to 23 occurs with Jesus coming and going from Jerusalem, specifically from the temple. So in these first three chapters, He's largely in the temple teaching and engaging. We see next week, the first thing He does is uphold or uh, overturn tables in the temple. The last two chapters of this particular section of study, chapters 24 and 25, uh, represent uh, another in the last section of concentrated teaching by Jesus, which we see in Matthew exclusively, um, large chunks of teaching, and it takes place on, a, on the Mount of Olives. And then, when we eventually get the last three days of Jesus' life, are really Matthew 26, 27, and 28, which we will study, not part of this, but in the future. So as we see in chapter 20 here, 21 here, uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and it coincides with the annual celebration of the Passover. This is not the first time the Passover was celebrated. Uh, Jesus uh, did celebrate it with His disciples um, when He was uh, away from Jerusalem. But this annual feast is, is iconic, is, is part of the identity of the Jewish people. It serves as a remembrance, a feast and a festival that... that remembers and commemorates their release from slavery in Egypt that had happened thousands of years prior, and particularly the redemption that their, the people experienced when they covered their doors with blood from the lamb they had sacrificed, and they were spared, their firstborns were spared while all animals and in the sons of Egypt died as the tenth plague in the story of Exodus. And so, although many would celebrate this locally, and you could, and Jesus did it one time, it was a significant thing for Jews to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this at the center of Jewish life. And so, at this time of year, the city would swell in population five, six, seven times the size of normal, which is why you see such large crowds that are gathering uh, as Jesus enters. And this well-known passage is probably titled in your Bible, The Triumphal Entry, which is a title that was put in by other uh, scholars way after the Gospel writers uh, when they organized the Bible into verses and chapters, uh, and was never used by the Gospel writers. Not to say it's wrong, uh, but it's not Scripture is my point. Um, and you also typically preach this particular text on the week prior to Easter called Palm Sunday, because they're laying down branches, which are palm branches. They're only called palm branches in the Gospel of John, but they assume, uh, obviously, that, that those are the kind of trees that are around. But this text really has very little to do with triumph. 
and even less to do with branches. Um, but it is an incredibly important text, and it's important because it marks a definite shift in how Jesus approaches His mission. This is no more evident than when we consider the two sets of blind men that are healed in the book of Matthew. Last week uh, on Easter, I preached about one set of blind men. But that wasn't the first set of blind men that almost identically Jesus heals in the book of Matthew. In, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, when He's in His hometown of Capernaum, He heals two blind men. And it happens in Matthew 9, verse 27 Here's what it says. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, and Capernaum is where he's talking about, two blind men followed him, crying, have mercy on us, son of David. Which is the same thing we heard last week in Matthew chapter 20. But have mercy on us, son of David, these two guys. And when he entered the house, so Jesus didn't heal them, he kept walking, goes in the house, the blind men follow him, they came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And they, he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And then, interestingly enough, Jesus sternly warns them, See to it that no one knows about it. Don't tell anyone you have been healed. Don't tell anyone about what I have done. Keep it quiet. It's very different from the experience we saw last week. He's going into Jerusalem. The crowds are following him. He's leaving Jericho. And two men, again, on a roadside, two blind men call out, have mercy on us, son of David. And he heals them. But this time, Jesus doesn't say, be quiet. He doesn't say anything, in fact. He just moves on as they follow him into Jerusalem. So, in chapters 21 through 25, we encounter a very different Jesus than we have for the first 20 chapters. He's no longer this kind of Galilean peasant that's wandering the countryside, kind of incognito, going into these obscure areas that no one typically goes into. This time, we see that he begins to dive headfirst into the center of religious life, and he plans some incredibly bold steps in order to confront the Jewish leadership, none less than going directly into the temple, which we'll see next week, and overturning tables and rebuking them. Jesus is pretty much picking a fight. He's picking a fight. He's trying to confront them. He's trying to challenge them. He's no longer hiding his identity. He is publicly and very boldly claiming to be someone specifically. And so at the beginning in chapter 21, and through symbols and some statements of the people, but not too much from Jesus Himself yet, we're going to slowly see that He is fully revealed. This is who I am. There's been a big mystery. There's been a lot of talk about me. He comes into Jerusalem and says, this is who I am. And by the end of Matthew, He is fully rejected for who He is. At first, no one's sure what to do with Jesus. They're uncertain. Well, is He just a good teacher? Is he just a lucky miracle worker? Who is he? There's no mistaking who he says he is. And there's no mistaking what happens when he is fully rejected. That's why the section's called the rejection of the king. It's important to remember as we begin to study this so that we can understand that you can't just come to the Bible where I think it's really foolish and go, all right, let's go and just read. 
It's even foolish to start in a book like Matthew and not ask yourself, what is Matthew trying to accomplish here? And the reason why is because we've said this before, that's why I said it would be a little introductory, there are four Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one is written by a different guy for a little bit of a different purpose. Now, Mark, which is the shortest Gospel, he's a young Jewish Christian and he writes like a bold preacher. He has many active verbs. It's very action-packed. And the reason why is because he is writing to Romans. And Romans like action. Romans like power. Romans like conquest. But the irony of it, or the beauty of it, is that he shows the Romans this amazing king who conquers through his death. Then you have Luke. Luke was an educated doctor. And he wrote like a very educated investigator to very uneducated Gentiles. And so he explains a lot of things. His Gospel is very long. He's trying to prove that this divine Jesus was actually a man, the Son of Man. He speaks of the Holy Spirit often and His humanness often. Then you have John. And John is the strangest of them all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of follow the same story. John has very few miracles. and, and a very just, It's different. Very few parables. John is very explicit about his purpose. He was a Jew writing for very educated philosophical Greeks. So he writes like a theologian to prove that this human Jesus was God in the flesh. And then we get to Matthew. And you always have to remember, what is Matthew doing? Who is Matthew? What is he trying to accomplish? Otherwise you will miss what he is saying. You'll misunderstand it for sure. Matthew is a Jew. He is writing to Jews in order to reach Jews, in order to evangelize to Jews. And he is arguing and hopefully proving that Jesus of Nazareth, this real man, was the Messiah that Israel expected. He wanted to prove that Jesus was the promised King. And so you see all throughout Matthew, several times, phrases like, for so it is written. And you'll reference Old Testament. Or here, as we see in chapter 21, this took place to fulfill. A phrase that appears 10 to 20 different times along with for it is written throughout Matthew. His gospel is an apologetic, a defense to Jews. He's writing well after Jesus has ascended to heaven and Jews are wondering, who was this Jesus guy? And Matthew is coming saying, He is the long-awaited King. And let me prove it. The Jews, His brothers, had rejected Jesus' teaching before He died because they thought He was arrogant. They rejected the Jesus on the cross, because who would ever follow a king of the Jews who would die so shamefully and not defend himself? And it goes without saying why they rejected the idea of a resurrected Jesus. But this is why Matthew takes pains more than any other gospel to show that every aspect of Jesus' birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection was prophesied. Really quick survey, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, the virgin birth. He says this was to fulfill, quoting Isaiah. He goes on in Matthew 
2, when Joseph takes his family and goes down to Egypt, hiding away from the slaughter that is ensued from Herod trying to kill toddler Jesus. And he says they went to Egypt to fulfill a prophecy out of Hosea. The killing of the kids by Herod was prophesied. This was to fulfill Jeremiah. He, Joseph, took his family up to Nazareth. And Matthew again says he came from Nazareth, Nazareth or this was to fulfill. And explains another Old Testament prophecy. He lived in Capernaum. And again, Matthew says he lived there to fulfill. And quotes Isaiah. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8. Again, Matthew says, this was to fulfill. He speaks in parables. And again, Matthew says, this was to fulfill. You have him riding a donkey. And the statement, this was to fulfill, as he quotes a verse out of an Old Testament book, Zechariah chapter 9. When he is arrested, and there's confrontation, Jesus says, this has happened to fulfill. And even at Judas's betrayal, says this has happened in order to fulfill. Constantly, to fulfill, to fulfill, to fulfill. Telling the Jews, his brothers, those who have rejected Jesus, say, this was the guy you have been waiting for. The Bible says so. He has a purpose in writing. And it's important for us to understand that as Jesus instructs his disciples to go get a donkey, this is more than just a symbolic gesture. Fulfillment of prophecy is the key to Matthew's portrait. And he is deliberately trying to say, look, Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Not only was this fulfillment of Zechariah, the donkey incident, if you will, it was actually a fulfillment of a much older passage in the book of Genesis. And again, I recognize that you can't always explain every Old Testament thing, but I also recognize that the longer I'm a pastor, the more I realize that many people are not familiar with Old Testament stuff. I think it's like, oh, that's helpful. It's essential to understand. Genesis chapter 49, there's only 50 chapters in Genesis. Jacob is Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name is Israel, or changed to Israel. He is blessing his sons as he's about to die, and he casts a blessing upon Judah. Judah is the tribe from which Jesus' family is derived, or his lineage comes from. And this is what he tells his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter, obviously royalty, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute come to him. And then it even continues to say, binding his foal. Getting donkeys back then? Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Let us not forget what Jesus called himself, that being the vine. And so you have this Old Testament stuff all coming to fruition in this picture that we can unpack all day. But Matthew is trying to point them to say, this is whom we have been waiting for forever. Since the beginning. Now, Jesus doesn't take the time to explain 
all of this as he's going. Matthew is writing in retrospect. So at the time, Jesus is unfolding or, or acting on what he knows about Scripture and fulfilling what he knows is God's prophecies. Having developed probably um, Samson-sized calves hiking around the wilderness. I mean, Jesus is like a Northwest hiker. He has been going around. He's been doing this for three years. So when he walks into Jerusalem or prior to it, it's not like he's like, guys, I'm a little tired. Could you get me a donkey? Right? He is intentionally doing something he's never done. Not out of need, but trying to communicate something about himself. Trying to accomplish something much greater. It's interesting how dismissive we are of the very small things in life believing they're insignificant to God. And they are significant. God is acting and moving through all these things. And so, predictably, but surprisingly, the Son of God chooses to ride a donkey. And contrary to popular opinion, even at the time, in ancient, ancient times, donkeys were actually a sign of great wealth. In the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10, one of the leaders, one of the judges that comes in that time is acclaimed as a man who had 30 sons and rode 30 donkeys. Whoa, right? And you might be thinking, you have like a circus? Like, was he a carny? What is it? Like, it's a big... No, he was wealthy and powerful. Well, in time, the horse kind of took the place of the donkey, and soon the donkey was regarded as a beast of burden to the poor, a workhorse. It wasn't always that case. This would have been true even at the time Zechariah, whom Matthew quotes here, had written his prophecy. That it was or had become a beast of burden, but that's not how it started. So Jesus is very much declaring himself wealthy and powerful. He's declaring himself to be a king. They don't think about, oh, we know what donkeys really mean. All they see is a man, a peasant man, on a beast of burden. And in choosing to do this, Jesus is very much intending to define just what kind of king he's going to be. Unlike the triumphal, literally, entry of a Roman emperor who is worshipped as God with a huge procession atop a war horse, Jesus is literally God on a donkey. You should think about that image. God on a donkey. Our Lord is a king who triumphs by getting low. That is very different than us as people. Very counterintuitive. We do not believe greatness is accomplished by getting low, but by getting great and doing great things and great education and great accomplishment and great power and great position and great wealth. Jesus does the very opposite of every leader we've probably had in this world. Couldn't be any more different than men who believe their triumph is dependent upon self-promotion and self-reliance and self-pride. Three times Jesus had told His disciples boldly, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. A couple times 
they ignored Jesus. One time they argued with Him about that. And even though He has told them very clearly, the disciples, the crowds, even the religious leaders believe this is where He is going to establish His kingdom with force. Here it comes, guys! And little do they know, but they will know that He intends to establish His kingdom through His death. Even His disciples, if you remember, who argued over their respective positions in the kingdom, argued over who was going to be greatest, failed to understand. On the night Jesus is even arrested, He's gone through the whole Passover supper with Him, the Last Supper, and explained it more times than we could ever imagine. They come to arrest, and what does Peter do? Pulls out a sword and cuts off a man's ear. How dare you take the king? What does Jesus say? Puts your sword in its place. But he continues, For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It must be so. What kind of king is Jesus? First, with the donkey, he declares himself to be king. But then he says, this is the kind of king I am. I am a king who is devoted to doing the will of his heavenly Father out of a love for mankind, regardless of what it would cost him on earth. Let us not forget in the temptation that Jesus was already offered every kingdom there was and all the power that came with it. And he successfully denied himself and honored God. He had said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I think very few of us, let's be honest, none of us live a life devoted to doing the will of the Father, regardless of what it costs us on earth. That's how we ought live. I believe that's how we can live through Christ, but that's not how we live. Most of us evaluate whether we're going to obey based off of what it's going to cost me. Jesus comes, King of all, who has it all, and says, I'm going to do the will of the Father, though it's going to cost me my life. But much more than that, it's going to cost me carrying the burdens of sins that I did not commit. It's going to cost me loving people who are unlovable. It's going to cost me forgiving people who are really hard to forgive. What does the king do? Well, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowd begins to lay out what would be the ancient version of the red carpet. Start putting their cloaks down, lay down branches, and the huge crowds begin to shout out all kinds of different acclamations, most derived from songs they've been singing during the Passover celebration. So during this time, they would sing what's called the Hallel, which is thousands and millions of people singing what is verbatim Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And so when they start crying out stuff, they're really quoting Psalm 118 or parts of it. These are songs they've been singing all week. Songs that they're going to continue to sing with their brothers and sisters. Songs that celebrate, look how God saved us. He redeemed us. Let's sing. And so they start shouting out the very things that they have been singing. Helps us to understand what's actually being said. First thing he says is, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna simply means save now. Save right now. You go, King. You save us. The King has come 
to save. They also say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which simply means to praise. Praiseworthy. The King has not come on His own initiative. The King has come to uphold the name of God. And then lastly, and most importantly, and the thing that I think we need to focus on, He says a strange phrase that none of us talk about very much. Hosanna in the highest. The word highest means the best. The King comes to do God's best work. The highest work. Now, it's not often that we believe that God is doing His best when it doesn't go our way. By the end of the week, Jesus ends up saving and glorifying God, but not in a way that anyone expected. In fact, Jesus falls well short of the expectation of His disciples and the crowds and the leaders and everyone. Jesus was not who they thought He was. Jesus did not do what they thought He was going to do. Jesus died. He didn't establish His kingdom. Everyone cries out, Save us! Save us, King! And they all have an idea of what that means. They all think it's going to be Jesus coming in going, boom! And I imagine when He overturned the tables, they're like, here He goes! Here He comes! Kicking out Rome. Showing how all the evil Jewish leaders are evil people. But how quickly during the week things change. Let's make it a little personal. The truth is, when we get in times of need, we all cry out the same things. Save us. Save us now, Lord. But we often expect Him to save us according to our form and our timeline and our way. We have an expectation of what salvation looks like. We define what peace is. What freedom is. What salvation is. Save us, Jesus, like this. Save me this way. Save me in this timeline. And when He doesn't, we're in a dangerous place. When our expectations are not met, when the King does not save us the way we thought He was going to, or do in the timeline we expected, it's unlikely for us to believe that God is saving. It's unlikely for us to believe that God is, or feel, I should say, that God is worthy of praise. Or for us to imagine that God is giving us His best. No, usually we think this can't possibly be God's best. An idea of how things are supposed to go. May not be easy, but it wasn't like this. In truth, when Jesus does not meet our expectations, when the king falls short, it's unlikely unlikely for us to believe that he's doing more than we can see, probably. No, we naturally begin to believe Jesus is much less than we thought. Much less loving. Much less in control. Much less present. That's our flesh. Maybe that's never happened to you. It's happened to me. You expect things to go a certain way. And it's not like 
our, I, I, wish, I wish that every time that happened, where my expectations of what I thought God was going to do, um, I thought, you know what? God's at work. I just know He is. That's not my first reaction. I pray it's my second, and often it's my fourth or fifth. Typically, it's like, what is going on, Lord? I thought, but I expected. Here's the truth that I really want us to hold on to, especially as you view God on a donkey and God dead at the end of the week. God is always doing the highest form of salvation for us. Always. Now, you may not see it. You may understand it. You may totally misunderstand it. But we have to rest in the truth that God is always doing the highest form of salvation. When Jesus fails our expectations, I'm newsflash, the problem's not with Jesus. The problem is that we have begun to believe Him to be less than He truly is. The problem is we have made Jesus less than He is because we are shaping Jesus according to our expectations of Him based on unbiblical assumptions about Him, not based on biblical revelations. I've said this before and I'll say it again. You are constantly being spoken to truth and lies of all kinds of things from your flesh, from the world, everywhere. And Matthew's point is, hello, guys! Jesus is who we thought He was supposed to be. And if you are constantly listening to the world, constantly listening to your flesh and not listening to this, you will have difficulty discerning truth from fiction. You will have expectations that are not met because you're worshiping a God that's not of the Bible. This allows you, provides for you, a reminder of what is true, a reminder of who Jesus is, a reminder of what He's done, something we constantly need to be reminded of. If you do not spend time in your Word, you will automatically think Jesus is less than He is. He is much more, and we mean reminded that He is much more loving, much more in control, much more at work when we can't see than we ever thought. And passages like this and others help us to believe that. When we don't, you will find another Savior. And typically you will make a Jesus up that's much less like who He says He is and much more like you. See, a Savior that's like us, a Savior that thinks like us, a Savior that dreams like us, a Savior that understands like us is not a Savior that can save us. In essence, we create wrong expectations that lead us to a wrong Jesus. And we create a Savior that's shaped by our experiences and our culture or just our flat-out fleshly desires of what we expect Him to do, what we want Him to do. As Matthew writes to Jews, he says that, look, if Jesus has fallen short of your expectations, guys, the problem is not with Jesus. So the question is this, as we, as we live we see this king declared who he is, and is a king very different than who we ever thought he was supposed to be. How are we supposed to respond to him? And I, I really love this passage um, because as much as the disciples throughout the Gospels, you look and you see that they get so many things wrong, 
they're just doofuses. And you, I say that because we're all doofuses. I really like the word doofus. If you haven't got it, I think it's it's a very safe, insulting word. Um, but they are. They're just you know they always say the wrong things. They always choose the wrong things, and it gives me comfort because I it, it feels like me. But occasionally they do the right things. And I don't. Funny thing is, I don't think they know they're doing right. But we can learn from from some of their responses to Jesus. As much as the disciples don't understand what is going on completely, and they don't, when Jesus gives them specific instructions that don't make sense to them, they do obey them. And we know they didn't make sense to them. We know that it wasn't like the disciples, like Jesus didn't go, hey guys, in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, I'd like you to go to that village. He didn't say that, right? And it wasn't as if the disciples were like, hey guys, it's from Zechariah. I know why we're doing this. They didn't know. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Speaking of the same passage. They didn't know what was going on. They had no clue. And yet, they obeyed. So as I was going through this, going, I could preach a traditional triumphal entry, blah, 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 Jesus King, and that's good. But I was stuck on what these disciples did and I'll be honest, how different it is in how I engage with God. We check out what they did, right? He says, see that village over there? Go get the donkey and its colt. If anyone says anything, you tell them the Lord needs it and you bring it back here. So the first thing they did was the disciples trust His commands more than their power to understand them. They trust His commands more than their power to understand them. Now, that's a weird command. It's one of the weirdest commands. It's not like difficult. It's just like, that's just weird. And if we're honest, which we're not typically, there are some things that are really easy to obey that Jesus commands us to do because we agree with them. Like, well, you know, pray. I'm going to do that. That's a good thing. You should love. I'm going to do that too. Then they're like, love your enemies. Oh. I want you to forgive as you've been forgiven. Oh. You don't, you don't mean that though, right? I mean, that really hurt me. You don't understand. Like, really? You really think he doesn't understand? Like, the command, like, there's the easy commands that we can feel really good about. Well, I did that. And then there's those pray for those who persecute you. Oh, you got to be kidding me. But the disciples here trust His commands more than their power to understand them. More than their power to understand them. And more than that, the disciples trust His power to overcome any hindrance to what He asks us to do. Because typically when, when we get a difficult command, our natural response is to say like, okay, well here are the seven ways it's not going to work out. If I forgive this person, or if I serve this person, or if I, you really want me to give this, or give this to this person who doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, I know they're going to waste it. Like we have our reasons. This is what's going to happen, Jesus, if you ask me to do this. If I make that sacrifice, this is going to happen. It's just, this is not going to end well. 
And Jesus, he doesn't even wait for them because they're imagining, like, imagine what he's told them to do. I want you to go into this and go grab the guy's donkey. Who? Just, just grab that donkey, you see. Yeah, but what's his name? Like, who's the owner? You like, have like, so just grab it. And he already predicts, like, if anyone gives you trouble, you just drop the Jesus card, right? The Lord needs it. And they're like, that's going to work. Right? And for us, we go, donkeys, how does that work? Like, imagine that's probably the guy's, like, livelihood. Like, that's that's big part of his life. So, like, you, like, hey, go to this town and go uh, up to that. Keys will be in the car. You just grab the car, get in it, and drive the van here because we needed to get Jerusalem. Like, what, Jesus? What van? It's a van. It's a really nice van. It's got like the captain seats and stuff. Just grab that van. In fact, grab that and grab the riding lawnmower next to it and bring that too because we need to cut down the grass and we're driving. Like, whatever. It's a serious question. Like, whoa. And his like defense, like, well, if you got trouble, if some guy runs out, like, what are you doing with my car? Right? Just, just tell him Jesus needs it. Now, for me, I'd be like, really? That's it? But the disciples obey. I mean, they do it. They go. And they trust that, you know what, it's going to work. If Jesus says, you know, ask my name, I, I get, it's going to work. But then the last one, I think, is just cool. And it's one we don't think about. We believe our obedience is about us. We believe that our obedience is about us being like good and proving something to someone. But when you accept the fact that Jesus' obedience is the only perfect obedience and yours will always be imperfect and therefore your faith in His is what matters, your obedience doesn't matter. But it does in a different way. I believe the disciples begin to trust not only did His commands and the obedience to him, like I'm going to do more than I even understand. I'm, I'm going to trust that you're going to overcome whatever hindrances I might have. But they also trust that their obedience contributes to him fulfilling his mission. Like, what if your obedience was not about you? Like, when you sit in forgiveness, many people go like, "Well, I've forgiven. Why do I obey?" Well, it's not that you shouldn't obey, but you obey for different motivations now. And the motivation is now like, wow, through my obedience, God is going to accomplish something. He is working out His plan. Like, that's what the disciples are doing. Like, oh, the donkey. Like, He's fulfilling something that was prophesied hundreds and even thousands of years prior. And they trusted, okay, I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. I think there's all kinds of problems with this plan. But I'm going to obey because I believe this is fulfilling your mission. This is weird. This is strange. This is difficult. This is costly. But I'm going to trust that you're doing something, God. And I'm going to follow. Which is pretty awesome for God to invite us into His mission and to say, you know what? Just getting a donkey for me matters. Just getting a donkey for me. So what's all this mean? Well, I just want to back up and as we conclude here. I want you to see this. The Gospel of Matthew and all Gospels as a genre are a very unique kind of writing. 
They're not letters to individuals like Timothy or Titus. They're not letters to churches like the Corinthians or Galatians. They're not apocalyptic prophecy, you know, big picture visions like the book of Revelation. Gospels deal specifically with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But they're more than just biography. They're more than just this a character sketch or a narrative of, of miraculous things for us to be impressed by. The Gospels are, are proclamations. The word Gospel literally means good news, and I know you've heard that, but historically what that meant was heralds would walk into towns and proclaim the news of events that had occurred that changed the listener's condition. Like, there's a new king! Not, hey, go do these seven things now. Achieve this. It was like, boom! New king! Okay, things are going to be different. Certainly the Gospel of Matthew contains all kinds of teaching more than any other Gospel. Moral, ethical, even theological. But these are not the Gospel. Christianity is not the explanation of a way of living as much as it's a proclamation of one man's life. The Gospel is primarily a declaration that God has done something to change everything. And our responsibility is not to do something, it's simply to respond. Jesus is King! What does that mean? He means He has conquered all. It means He is ruling all. It means He is working out all for His glory and our joy. We are just responding to what He has done. And we ought to respond. The Gospel of John, in retelling the same story, tells us that the crowd that followed Jesus into Jerusalem didn't come largely from Jerusalem. It actually came from Bethany. And what happened in Bethany prior to this? not recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in John. It was the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus had done something that no one had done. Risen a man from the dead. His friend. And the whole city of Bethany and the crowds followed Him. Like, oh my goodness, this guy raised someone from the dead! And they all followed Him to the city and they were all the ones singing. And so much says the whole city was stirred. Which is the word actually, same word, it has the root word of earthquake. The thing was shaken, beastquake style, right? It's like Jesus quake, singing that loud, thousands of people all moving. This is the king, he has come to save. And all of their expectations and all of their passions and all of their excitement have been ignited by the reality of the resurrection. You actually can celebrate the resurrection more than just one day a year. We go 364 not talking about the resurrection. Then last week we go, Easter, let's say something about the resurrection. The resurrection is supposed to be the thing that ignites our passions. It is the thing that made them go, Jesus must be King. And so we sit here too, gathered, just like the crowds were. Looking to Jesus inspired by His resurrection. Ignited by His resurrection and its reality and its truth and its total declaration that He is King. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is on His throne. There was a time when He got off His throne and He died, but that He died meant He was raised to glory. 
And like the crowds, we are to continue to bear witness to Him and say, Jesus, not just save us, You have saved us. Hosanna to the King. Hosanna to the One who has come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the One who continues to save in the highest way just as He did with the cross. We come here broken, messed up, confused, worried, have all kinds of things that aren't going right, and we worship the cross and say, okay, God's always at work. The King is always working. And He has always given us His best, even if we don't understand it, even if I can't comprehend it, even if I think there's 15 things in between of making it happen, I'm going to obey, I'm going to follow, because He's already shown me the fruit of that obedience. So like the crowds, we will continue to bear witness to Him in hope for His return. In hope and expectation for the day where He comes and He establishes a new heavens and a new earth. And in Jerusalem, He will reign with us. The new Jerusalem we will be His people and He will be his, our God. But we must never forget this. God will never be on a donkey again. When Jesus returns the second time, it's very different. And it should be inspiring to us. Because He came in such a way to go, man, that is not how I expected the King to come. However you expected the King to come, He's coming that way the second time. In, ja in Revelation chapter 19, it says very clearly that first time Jesus came was as a lowly peasant on a donkey, but the second time He's returning as a conquering King on a war horse. Just as everyone thought he was going to, he will. It says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse! Exclamation point! So John will be yelling it, just like I am. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, not the crowds of people who would not be worshiping him by the end of the week, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on a white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is something to be joy. That is, so you know, I know we probably can't shake the city of Snohomish. But this building's built in like 1880 and it's pretty creaky, right? I bet we can get it swinging. And we should get it swinging if we are singing about the reality of the resurrection and the truth that we believe Jesus is king and actually ruling. If He is ruling, nothing is outside of His control. If He is ruling, He is constantly and always protecting, constantly and always providing, constantly and always loving us. And that's why we take communion. This is the reminder, the declaration, our King has conquered sin. So you don't sit in despair or pride thinking you're all that. He has conquered Satan. There is no enemy that can overcome you. And He has conquered death so there's no fear. 
Absolutely not. So I pray that as we sing, we will be stirred by the resurrection, just like the crowds were stirred by Lazarus' resurrection, but we're stirred by the better resurrection. And we will sing, not because I said to, but sing because your hearts are crying out, Jesus, thank you for saving me. And don't care about what the person, I, I sound horrible, okay? Don't, don't care what the person next to you, like, just bolt it out. Just yell. I, this, the singing would be awesome. They'd be shaking, like, what is going on at that building? I don't know. But the question they come up with, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Not, hey, what's going on at that church down there, right? It's, who is this Jesus? I pray you will believe that Jesus is king, and he's coming again, because he is. And we're going to pray that he comes right now, because that would be stinking awesome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace, Lord. We are unbelieving fools at times. We set expectations, Lord, that you never revealed. And we ignore what you have about yourself, how you are a different kind of king who is not impressed with our work, but, Father, did the work so that you could be impressed with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for doing everything that had to be done in the most unexpected, mysterious way. I pray you will help us to believe, to truly believe that the King saves, to truly believe that our King died in our place for our sins, to truly believe that our King has conquered sin and Satan and death, to truly believe that our King is ruling now and that our King is coming again. Oh Jesus, I pray you will come quickly. That you will come and you will reestablish your rule in the most permanent way and restore all things to yourself so that we can be completely free of the brokenness of our flesh and the brokenness of this world. But until then, Father, make us a people who are stirred by your resurrection, who bear witness to your salvation, so much so that people ask, who is this Jesus? It is in his name we pray. Amen.